episode 188 of the Bevan James Hour Show, an interview with Andrew Huberman. Alrighty, team, welcome along to episode 188 of the Bevan James. I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Uh, today, I'm very excited about the interview I have today. Um, I've got an interview with a man called... Andrew Huberman, he is, listen to this for, listen to this for your Wikipedia bio, is an American neuroscientist and tenure professor at the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He has made numerous important contributions to the field of brain development, brain, brain plasticity, and uh, neuroregeneration and repair. This man is this shit. <laughs> can I say that? I, I can, because it's my show and I can do what I want. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy called Paul, he's just said to me, you got to watch this clip on YouTube about with this guy, Andrew Huberman, and I listened to it and it was just brilliant. And I thought, oh, geez, I need to get him on the show. So I've got him on the show. Um, I'm not going to do much, too much of a talk before today, or before the main part of the interview, because it's just, we talk, we, seriously, I've got to talking for 10 hours to Andrew. He is, you're going to see pretty quickly. One thing about him is he's, he's a academic who also knows how to sell a message because sometimes when you get people from an academic world they have a lot of knowledge but they don't necessarily know how to package it or sell the message and Andrew is somebody who is just very passionate has knowledge man intelligence like you wouldn't believe but can share that message in a really powerful way, which you're about to see. But before I get into that, I just want to quickly say a big thank you to some of the patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron of the Bevan James Isles show, go to bevanjamesisles.com, click on the link to podcast, and then support me. They'll go through the process. When you do, you get a cool nickname, and Rebecca Bullseye Spears, uh, Bernadette Soul Caliber Parry, Matt Forrest Warhol Ackhurst, Holly the Go-Getter Woodhouse, and Sue the Only Way Up Chisel are all great supporters of the show. So again, become a patron by going to bevanjamesisles.com. Uh, I'm not going to waste any more time because I think the interview is about an hour 15, hour 20 anyway. Uh, this is a great interview, guys. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Here is Andrew Hupperman. Uh, so I've got Andrew on the show. Welcome along to the show, mate. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted let's, to be here. Let's start with you. You know, you're, you're a very passionate man who's doing some really important work. Where did it all start? What got you on this journey? Well, all right. Well, I'll try and keep this relatively brief. Um, uh, otherwise, it will surely do one thing, which is probably cure insomnia if I were to go <laughs> on. But, um, you know, in some sense, I was fated to become a scientist because uh, my father's a scientist. My grandfather was a scientist. And when I was a little kid in my home, there was very little discussion of sports or politics or anything, really. There was discussion of movies and science. I think my whole family loves movies and, um, and we happen to, you know, uh, talk about those a lot, but science was a prominent theme. So my dad was a researcher, a theoretical physicist, uh, working on chaos theory in the eighties and growing up, we had graduate students over to our house for barbecues. We'd spend summers at, um, sort of thought tank, think tanks and, you know, conferences around physics. And back then there weren't many women in physics. So the mothers and the kids would 
hang around and play play games and stuff and the the dads would work. That was how it was in the 80s anyway. There were a few women, but not many um, actually doing the physics. Nowadays, that's changed, fortunately. So I learned a lot about scientists and how they interact. And um, my dad told me at a very young age, he said, you know, I have the best job in the world. Every day I go to work, it feels like my birthday. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I said, I want to, I want to feel like that. I, I want to be a physicist. And he said, no, don't do that. I think that by the time you're old enough to do science, a lot of the fundamental problems in physics are going to be solved. You should pick something else with that's not so crowded. And I said, well, what should I do? And he said, well, we don't know much about how the brain works. I said, okay, well, I'll study how the brain works. And um, so there was an early seed of that, that conversation he and I both remember. I was six years old. Um, oh, and six, and- like six, he's having this conversation with you. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, it was, it was, it was a different sort of childhood. Yeah, obviously. Was, like, <laughs> tab, right? um, you know, I would go to his lab. He was a theoretical physicist, but I remember early days he would take me, we would take bananas and we would dip them in liquid nitrogen and then we'd smash them against the wall. So we had some, did some fun experiments too. Um, and we'd look down microscopes and things like that. But I, I've always been very interested in animals and I love animal form. Um, you know, animals of all kinds. I love the way they move. I, you know, it's interesting because nowadays I'm very involved in comparative neurology and trying to understand kind of what, how different brain structures lead to different kinds of behaviors and thought. Anyway, something we can get into later, but there was that early seed. And then what happened was I diverged in a major way. Um, when I turned 13, uh, my parents split up. Unfortunately, it was a very high conflict divorce. My dad moved away. Uh, my mom struggled a lot with the new configuration. I was one of the only kids in my school with divorced parents. And I fell very, you know, heavily into skateboarding, tie boxing, um, punk rock music. I, fe- I fell in with a bunch of other kids that were kind of wanderers and had um, semi-functional or dysfunctional homes, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I became part of this big pack of kids that spent some time in San Francisco just skateboarding and running the city. And um, I got a girlfriend. I was getting into fights. It was, it was a, it was a very, um, it was a crazy time because I had so much structure early and then all the structure mm. was gone, all of it. And, uh, what was interesting about that time, however, was, well, first of all, I want to be very clear so that I don't catch too much flack from them. I was not an excellent skateboarder. Okay. I was not like fated to become a, a professional skateboarder. I just really liked it. And I loved the camaraderie and I felt that those people were my family and it was like, mm. it was a home for me. I found someplace to put my energy and my effort, but I was hardly attending school. I got moved around from a couple schools. They didn't know what to do with me. I was dealing with a lot of, you know, issues because my whole life had essentially fallen apart from the family standpoint. Uh, fortunately, I did not get into drugs and alcohol. You know, I, I dabbled like young people do, yeah. um, but I didn't have a, a tendency for that, but I loved adrenaline and I loved camaraderie and adventure and so in that time, I got to know some really interesting people and I noticed things. I noticed that some people could drink or not drink. Some people could drink and that's all they did. Some people um, dabbled with drugs and walked away from it. Some people dabbled with drugs and became full-blown heroin addicts. A lot of those guys, unfortunately, nowadays are either dead or incarcerated. Some of them are professional skateboarders doing really well. Some of them are professional musicians, but I would say it divided sort of in thirds, yeah. about a third probably went off and did more typical normal lives about a third got really into their sport and flourished or their, their craft. And about a third totally crashed and burned dead or incarcerated. So I just started noticing that people can engage in the same behaviors and they can end up in very different places. Um, And 
what happened was, to make a long story short, eventually I followed my high school girlfriend off to university. I actually lived in the parking lot in my car outside her dormitory wow. because she was like my family at that point. And they didn't want to let me live in the dormitory with her, you know, and she had a roommate. I was like, who is this guy with all his friends showing up? And uh, so I would, you know, but she was my family. So I gravitated towards her and I took a job working in a laboratory of a guy um, who was studying, who was actually studying a certain drug that back then wasn't well known, which is MDMA or ecstasy and understanding how it impacted body temperature because people were dying from overheating on ecstasy at raves and things like that. So I would talk to him and I'd ask a lot of questions and kind of, you know, do more than just my work. And I would you know, ask him questions. I always, had a, I always had a strong work drive and I was still running and I was getting into Thai boxing and I was going out to a gym in Van Nuys, which is kind of Southern California. I really thought maybe I'd be a fighter or something, which is also a stupid idea for somebody like me because I wasn't good enough to really make it there either, but I really enjoyed it. And at one day he pulled me aside and he said, you know, you seem to really be curious about what's going on here you should sit in on a couple of my classes. So I sat in on a class of his where he was talking about depression and schizophrenia and anxiety and hunger and feeding. And I was just blown away. I thought it was just amazing. I mean, here was a guy explaining to me all the things I had seen, but he was telling, you know, in the, in people, but he was telling me about these chemicals and these cells in the brain and how this is all put together. And I thought, this is amazing. Like there's really something here. And so I, I basically, I enrolled in the school. I don't know how I got in, but I took some classes at the local community college. Then I eventually was admitted. Um, and I started, kept working in his lab. And mind you, I hardly went to high school. So I, I hadn't read many good books. Um, I, I have a good memory. I've always had a good memory, especially for things I'm interested in. But I basically put myself into a very stoic world. I read and studied and studied and I worked out and I ran. I basically lifted weights, ran and studied nonstop. And people that knew me were like, what happened? You, my girlfriend at the time was like, what happened? You know, like created a monster. I and mean, she was happy because I finally was on a path. Yeah. Um, but that's really what happened. And then about a year after that, and I was doing very well, getting good marks. But I, I want to be clear, I had to work, I had huge gaps in knowledge and I had to work extremely hard. And I became very conservative in my behavior. This isn't political conservatism, but just in my behavior. I, you know, I didn't go out and party. Every once in a while, I go out and really tie one on and really, you know, I was a young guy. So, yeah. you know, that happens. I'm not suggesting anyone do that, but I would do that. And then I'd quickly go right back into this very structured world. I also started getting really interested in nutrition and supplementation and how it could serve not just my sports performance, but my mind. Like, what were the things that were going to allow me to focus and learn more faster? I started learning about this thing called neuroplasticity. And I just started devouring neuroscience. And at some point I reconnected with my dad and we oh, so you, you out disconnected our, with your dad through that time, had you? Yeah, yeah we weren't in touch at that point. Okay. He had moved overseas. And so there was a long gap where, you know, despite my parents being good people, very loving, I was just, I was really untethered yeah. from any kind of structure. So I, in some ways I, I, say I rescued myself, but really it was this university teacher who was remarkable um, and in giving me an opportunity. And then also my girlfriend at the time, I mean, I, I have to thank her. I mean, I followed her um, and I wouldn't have ended up near a university. I was thinking about maybe joining the fire department or opening a gym or I didn't know what I was going to do really. So I got super excited about science and he said, look, if you go to graduate school, they'll pay you. They'll actually pay you in the sciences. 
and it's not much money, but you can, you know, if you're careful about how you spend, they'll pay you to get a PhD and you can be a professor. And I was like, that's it. So I, I actually wrote down my goals. I said, age 30 PhD, age 35 professor, age 40 tenure, which in the American system means some people think it means job for life, but it really means academic freedom to pursue your interests. I mean, you can still have to behave yourself and everything. I think it's a misunderstood concept. Um, and th that became the goal. And I based, and that's what I did. I spent the next, well, now the last 25 years just pursuing this life in science, being a brain explorer, going to conferences, learning how the brain works, talking to people who work on brain development, studying that in my lab and working on brain development, function and plasticity. And then in the last couple of years, I, around 2015, I had a moment where I said, okay, we've had great success. We've been publishing well. We've brought in grant funds. I've had PhD students get their degree with me. I'm teaching classes. But there are these practical problems in the world around anxiety and sleep issues and mental health and um, want people wanting to learn and grow. And I see a lot of that in the wellness and sports performance community. And I feel... At the time, I said, I, I feel like there's so much knowledge inside of neuroscience about this from circadian biology and autonomic nervous system, neuroplasticity, all this stuff, and nobody knows about it, but it's, there are a lot of practical implementations. So I basically, in 2015, I started you know, going to conferences that were a little bit more wellness-directed, doing a few podcasts, although that's only kind of more of a recent thing. Um, in 2019, I started teaching neuroscience on Instagram and just trying to bring together the public interest in all these themes of, you know, sleep, wellness, health, mental health, high performance. I've done some consulting work with the military in Canada and the U.S. Like, and trying to really merge the themes of science to try and give people tools so that they can make use of all this wonderful science that, frankly, they paid for. The taxpayers pay for this stuff in every country. And as long as knowledge is vaulted inside of universities or in manuscripts and papers that no one's going to read, it, it's to me, we have the saying in science until it's published it like it's like it never happened. Mm. And I would say I would go a step further and say until that information has had a practical impact on the real world, it's like it's like it still hasn't happened. Yeah. So, you know, otherwise, it's just, you know, dollars and, you know, research animal lives and investigators and stuff. And so I think those years of, of kind of wandering and having those challenges and encountering all these different kinds of people, I'm, I feel so blessed for that hardship because had I just grown up in a family where everyone did science and everything was, you know, just great, I wouldn't have been exposed, I think, to as much suffering. And, I, and that suffering is what I'm trying to meet and answer and solve in the form of tools nowadays. And so things have really converged for me. So that's the story. And now, you know, I'm a scientist and I have a lab and we run experiments, but the public education part is every bit as much important to me as the laboratory discovery component. So, so like I love the, the idea of a career and a body of work. And so it seems like in your career, your body of work was traditionally going to be that scientific pathway, which is a, a body of published work. Whereas actually what you want to see is the impact that those published works can have on the community of your world. That's right. That's absolutely right. You said it uh, much better and more succinctly th than I did. And that's exactly right. And uh, also, you know, it's not just my work. So for instance, um, I have a friend and colleague at the National Institutes of Mental Health, um, Samra Hattar, who's like kind of the world expert on how light impacts mood and transmitters in the brain like dopamine. And he does beautiful work that I'm aware of that has huge implications for everybody about 
the role of light in the middle of the night, how it can trigger depression depending on the timing of light. These are published data. And by knowing that, I can also share the information and the, the real kernels of wisdom from other people's work that I know and translate that for people. So I'm like any scientist, I'm happy to talk about the work I do and, and its possible implications and its direct implications and the tools that result from it. But just as exciting for me is the ability to look to my uh, discovery that's published in a journal and translate that for the general public. Or, there, or in addition, I should say, there are concepts like grit, resilience, growth yeah. mindset that now neuroscience has something to say about the underlying mechanism. And mechanism is often misunderstood. People think that mechanism, like if you get, people say, well, you don't need to know how a car works to drive a car. Aha. But if you know how it works, you can troubleshoot when things go wrong. You can also build better cars. Yeah. And so mechanism is powerful. And it's not to say that the psychological concepts aren't powerful, but I think nowadays being able to marry some of the things that we've heard about a lot in the last 10 years, especially like gratitude and growth mindset and all these kinds of things with some underlying mechanism gives us a tremendous advantage in terms of distributing those tools and allowing people to take maximum advantage of those tools. So, so you know, you're, you're, it was a really interesting story because you, you, you had this kind of moment as a young man at six where your dad was planting a seed, then you had this kind of fall away moment, and then you found the passion moment. And, and so many people will live a life where they're like, I just don't, you know, I need to find my passion. You know, the, I'm sure lots of people listening to this right now, you know, think, oh, Andrew's so lucky because he found his passion and they know that I love fitness and, you know, I found my passion. But they kind of walk around lost. What's it, can you explain that scientifically, that, what that moment means and what that does for people? Like, you know, in a neuroscience kind of way? Or can, can you give us some insight into that? Because that moment, that moment where that professor said, he basically showed you that your curiosity has some answers and that really triggered just a new you in that moment. So I will say there was a component of fear too. It wasn't all pleasure. There was definitely a strong component of fear. You know, when you're a 15, 16, 17 year old kid who's struggling, you're a troubled kid. Hmm. Now, when you're an 18 or a 19 year old kid, young man, whatever you want to call it, at, who's struggling, people start to care less and less about the story. And the story is only, I started to realize is only interesting if I actually make something of myself. Otherwise, it's just another story of failure, yeah, right? It's, it's and good so point, yeah. there, there was definitely some fear that had me agitated to keep looking. Now, I do see a lot of the time people struggle with figuring out what the right thing is for them. And I should be clear that in the course of science, you know, I've worked in a lot of different topics, circadian biology. I did a degree in hormone uh, sort of like endocrine stuff for a couple of years. Um, so I, you know, you bounce around a little bit, but you, you are following something that seed and what you're following has a neurochemical signature. So the answer is yes. And here's, here's what that, that mechanism looks like. Every animal, every organism needs signals to know when it's on the right track in life. The simplest example of this would be an animal that wakes up from a nap. Let's just say like a, a deer or something like that and is hungry and thirsty. So how does that animal know that it's hungry and thirsty? Well, it doesn't. It feels an agitation. It feels a low level of adrenaline in its system, and it starts looking for food and water. If it doesn't find food and water after a long enough period of time, that level of agitation will continue to go up. The adrenaline was actually designed to keep it mobile, to keep looking. And at some point, let's say that deer finds a nice clear stream, and takes a sip of water and it gives a sense of pleasure. And that sense of pleasure 
is dopamine. The molecule dopamine was designed to tell us when we're on the right track. So now that deer might stay along that stream or it might remember the sequence of events that brought it to that stream. That's a powerful system is designed to bring us toward things and to keep us in the direction of those things. So in my story, which is much more centered on things like school and learning and not doing things like boxing and skateboarding as a career, for instance, what I was sensing without realizing that I was sensing and looking for was the ability to feel some sense of pleasure and progress. And so this is really important for the, the mentors of the world to understand is that you don't want to hand out rewards when people aren't winning. You don't want to give trophies just for people showing up. But if you lay out breadcrumbs in front of them and they continue to move towards those, you're doing them a tremendous favor if they continue to move towards them. So for me to just describe this in a little more um, direct way, I sat in this class, I learned something and I felt something like this is really cool. And then I thought, well, okay, I don't have the background. I don't know all this stuff, gene regulation, cell biology. But the feeling that it was really cool, that dopamine rush was bigger and more important to me. It felt more significant than the anxiety I might have felt about not being able to move forward. And so I just continued peeling back the layers and, peeling, and going to the next thing and going to the next thing. I will say this because I think it's important. My lab um, has studied fear and courage. And... In 2018, we published a paper in the journal Nature that showed that the brain has two circuits. One of them has us back away or hide or freeze in response to things that make us feel fear, which is really just the stimulation of adrenaline in our system. Another brain circuit, meaning a different brain area, triggers a reaction where we move forward even in the presence of anxiety. What was interesting is that there is a higher level of anxiety when you move forward. Now you say, of course, if I move forward, it's actually scarier than I just stop. But what's interesting is if you look at anxiety as something that is designed to move you forward, then you start to realize, ah, maybe this is what nature is re rewarding. And in fact, it is rewarded. So in this experiment, my graduate student discovered that when you move forward, despite a surge of adrenaline, that kind of fear response, it triggers the release of dopamine. We identified an actual neural mm -hmm. connection, a physical connection in the brain that causes that action to be rewarded. Now, these are ancient circuits that we can put toward getting degrees in school or building a career or showing up better for our family or our loved ones in any way. But these are the same circuits that allowed animals like the deer I described or you, if you were to be hungry, to go out and pursue something. So the message is it's foolish of for any of us to think that moving toward our goals and towards these seeds of curiosity or seeds of excitement is not going to involve stress and anxiety, but there's a chemical reward along the way. Dopamine is not just released when you reach the end, it's released as you move toward the end. And being able to register and really feel those sensations is very important. This is so crucial because I think that a lot of what stops people is the sense that they look at where they're at now. They look at where they want to go. They break it down into steps like everyone does. Journey of a thousand miles starts with yeah. a single step. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? But they forget that the key element is to reward the steps and that the rewards are internal. It's not like, let's say with a monetary award, it's not like you take money and cram it in your ear and it releases dopamine. It's the association. 
And the real, the, the real power tool is the thing that my colleague Carol Dweck came up with, which is this growth mindset, which is when some people do this intrinsically, these kids that she was studying do this naturally and reflexively, but when you start to reward the effort process, mm. not the goal, and people think, well, that's just positive self-talk. You're saying, oh, I love the fight. I love the battle. It's the process, not, it's the journey, not the destination. Ah, but to the extent that you can really feel like, oh, I'm on the right track. Today was horrible, maybe. You say, oh, today was so hard and I failed 10 things. But if you say, I'm on the ladder and that's what counts and reward that and in fact, and invoke some gratitude, like I have the opportunity to keep going. What you'll find is that there's a chemical switch where all of a sudden, if it's humor or gratitude or self-reward in the form of these mental rewards, you feel a lift, you feel relieved. And that's because effort is the result of adrenaline and norepinephrine exerting itself. So let's say you're pedaling hard uphill and you're grinding and grinding and it burns and it hurts. You can't just tell yourself this feels good because you're lying to yourself. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. But if you say the hurt is the path, and I'm going to reward the, the hurt process. That's me getting better. What ha or you could laugh at yourself and just say, this is hilarious that I'm even forcing myself to do this. Or, oh my goodness, this is amazing that I have the opportunity to feel this sensation. What you'll find is that there's an immediate shift in your feeling of that event. And th the fact that it's so fast means it has to be neurochemical. It's not psychological. It's not hormonal. It's neurochemical, and that, that neurochemical is dopamine. Dopamine is suppressing the level of noradrenaline, of adrenaline, and it allows you now to exert yourself in, at higher levels and for longer periods of time. And some people do this by attaching themselves to a bigger meaning. You know, God, the universe, someone that died, they attach themselves to a mission. Mm. Some people do it by attaching it to something that only makes sense to them. But we know that if you can start to self-assign these rewards in your mind, that you give yourself a huge advantage. And I always say that, you know, things like gratitude, it's not the same as complacency. Actually, some of the highest performers in elite military, in sport, they use these tools reflexively of gratitude, of attaching their mind to mission. And if you think about it, what's really interesting is it's all internal. None of it, no one's, no one's handing them a little cup of dopamine on the sidelines. Everybody's got access to water. Everybody's got access to the same neural circuitry. But some people realize there's this whole set of neural circuitry that's about moving forward and learning to attach reward to it. This so that's a long-winded long answer. But I think what I did back then was I was searching for things that felt good, but I also was learning how to feel good in the, in the discomfort and, uh, you know, I, I'm not the hardest worker in the world. I'm a hard worker, yeah. but I'm sure there are people who work harder. Um, you know, I'm definitely not the smartest person. I work hard. I, I work, it's, it's just learning to attach reward to the effort process is very different than positive self-talk. Positive self-talk is attaching a, a statement to the end goal, but you want to attach the statement to friction. The more friction, the yeah. better. And you will, you will shift everything if you can access that. And it doesn't take much work to do it. You just have to trust the process. So there's two questions I have here. First of all, did you watch the, the, the sub two hour marathon? Did you watch that um, when Kachabu I, I watched the, I watched the, I didn't watch the whole two hours. Well, well, just, I, one of the strategies was he smiled the whole race. There was actually a strategy they went into it with from what I, from what I know. Um, and, and, and is it, so as a neuroscientist, like, is this, is this, there's obviously a strategy that is triggering what you're talking about here. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think in about 10 years ago, there was this idea that our body posture and our facial expressions can impact our mood just as much as our state can impact our body posture. To be honest, I don't think it runs in both directions quite as powerfully, meaning I think our state of mind tends to impact our expression more than our expression can impact our state of mind. Look, if all it took was to smile in order to be happy when you're clinically depressed, you won't be depressed because- no one wants to be clinically depressed. However, there is a key seed of knowledge there that I think is worth following up on, which is that it is very hard to control the mind with the mind. If I'm sad, I can't just say, be happy. If I'm stressed, look, if somebody is stressed or you're stressed, the worst thing you can say is calm down. You can't do it. You can't do it. You need to invoke the body. You need to bring the body into that process. So I like the the notion of using the body, but for instance, my lab has done a lot of work in other labs as well on how respiration, on how breathing can impact states of mind. And there, there's a very direct relationship. When you're breathing fast, the diaphragm, there's a nerve connection from the diaphragm to the brainstem called the phrenic nerve, P-H-R-E-N-I-C, the phrenic nerve that says, the diaphragm is moving fast, I'm breathing fast, therefore the brain should be more alert. And when you're breathing slowly, you know, how does the brain know how alert your body is or what your body's going through? Well, the phrenic nerve, if it's firing very slowly, your brain says, oh, it's fine out there. So I'm going to breathe slowly. I'm going to be calm because I'm breathing slowly. And it doesn't know breathing. The brain doesn't know breathing. It knows phrenic nerve activity. So what's interesting about this is nowadays there's kind of a movement towards, um, in some circles, you know, nasal breathing through for great portion of training, not all training. There is a time to mouth breathe, of course. Part of that, I think, is that the brain can stay calm. You can stay slightly more, as we say, parasympathetic and in the kind of calm regime than really activated, even when you're climbing uphill, so to speak. It could be real uphill on a bicycle or, or, or running, or it could be, you know, metaphorically, you know, studying. So the body can inform and steer the brain, but they have to work together. So if somebody's smiling, I bet you that the smile itself might have a mild impact on state. But I think what's more powerful is the fact that he was in control. He was doing something to take control of state of mind, Uh, even if it's subtle. So it's knowing that you have that leverage. Also, smiling and certain patterns of vision, which we could talk about. Yes. Keep the neck muscles and the the neurons of the so-called cranial nerves and brainstem relaxed. And we know that the more relaxed you can stay in physical effort, the more, the longer you can sustain that effort. And the reason for that is that there's a beautiful study published a couple years ago that shows there's a chemical, adrenaline, or sometimes called epinephrine, and not the kind that comes from your kidney that's released by the adrenals, or you know the adrenals above the kidney, but released in the brain. And if a nor- noradrenaline or adrenaline gets too high, you quit. It, it triggers a quitting reflex. And I've always wondered about this. You know, if I try and lift a car, I can't lift a car unless it's a very tiny car, but a real size car. But running is an interesting one because running, you actually decide to stop, right? Unless your limbs are broken or something's really gets, gets in the way, you sort of decide to stop. And I always wondered, what is that? Dis- where's the brain circuit that says, I quit? Where's the quitting circuit? And this was actually published in the journal Cell, phenomenal journal. And it shows that if norepinephrine gets too high, then you quit. Animals quit exerting effort. People quit exerting effort. So if you can stay relaxed, you keep that level of noradrenaline at bay. And the other things that keep it at bay are associations that release dopamine or serotonin. So humor, like 
is a, such a powerful tool. If you and I are embarking on a mission and it's just dreadful and things are really bad and you crack a good joke, we will yeah. instantly feel reset. And that's dopamine pushing that noradrenaline level back down again, which gives me room to then exert myself more. So when he was running smiling, I'm guessing, and this is here I'm speculating, but I'm guessing that he was keeping that noradrenaline level down and it was also reminding him to stay relaxed. So there probably a number of different features coming from his body to keep his brain, brain right at that maximal effort, but not to the point where he would get trigger that quitting reflex or go too hard and maybe stay off pace. You know, I'm not an expert runner, so I don't yeah. know. I'm sure that was a, I'm sure that was a very technical oh, it was. endeavor. It wasn't just, it wasn't just running and there was probably yeah. a ton that went into that. So as people listen to this, if they're thinking about, well, how would you apply this in your own life? I think the ability to attach reward to that effort process is key. But the other thing is learning to control that throttle. If you look at people in elite special forces, one of the things they're so good at, they're extremely gritty and resilient, but there's something else to it. They know how to spend the bank account of effort. They don't exert effort when they don't need to. And when they exert effort, they're very economical about how they exert that effort. And where I see people flailing in lots of domains of life is when they think it's all about grit and resilience. You know, norepinephrine is the energy that gets you going. Then the dopamine and serotonin. So dopamine typically when you can associate reward with the effort process, serotonin is typically associated with feelings of gratitude or that you're, you have what you need. It's, it's nature's way of making you feel good after a meal or holding a loved one or even just the thought of a loved one. When I think about my bulldog, I love this dog. I've had him 10 years. It's crazy. It's a dog, right? But when I think about him, I feel good. Yeah. And by that's serotonin. And when that is released, I then feel, I literally can feel a little bit of energy in my body because the consequence of that is when an animal or person feels they have what they need, they can then lean into effort again. Okay. When we feel like we don't have food, we don't have sustenance, we don't have connection, we can't do that. So a lot of people who are struggling, they say, well, okay, but great, you've got all this stuff, your life is put together, but if I don't, ah, but remember, it's all internal. So the, the process is not one of lying to yourself. The process is one of looking around you and identifying what are the things that you have. If you're still breathing and you're alive during COVID, you're winning. You mm -hmm. should register that win. Whether or not you, you know, whatever your feelings are about the virus situation, it's a tough period for a lot of people. So register those wins and then use those wins to move into the next level of effort. But don't go, you know, just don't go crazy and exert so much effort that then you spin out. You got to keep these things toggling back and forth. So the way I like to think about it is a little bit like a seesaw. Effort and focus on the things that are outside you, a finish line, a race, money, a career, a degree, the things that you want that are outside you are all about dopamine. But it's also important to activate the reward circuits that trigger the release of serotonin, gratitude, feelings of connection, appreciation. Those toggled back and forth will give you the capacity that you need to go endlessly through essentially any endeavor and reset yourself neurochemically. So, 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 yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Yeah. And so what you're ultimately saying is, is you need a practical way to, to activate those things in the way you live your life. So, so what is an example of a practical way to do that? Like, obviously yeah. you're saying, you know, find that moment of gratitude, but is it about being quite processed in how people go about doing that? Like if, if someone's coming to see you, what would you say, how would they apply that in their everyday life? 
Yeah. So a uh, great question. So the brain really wants to do two things. It wants to hand off as much of its world and role to reflexes. So if you already know how to do something, like let's say you love working out, but you hate studying, or yeah. you could reverse this if you want, but let's say you love working out, but you hate studying. Well then running is going to be automatic. It's not going to going out and running or doing a workout is going to be the kind of thing that you just enjoy doing. Yeah. And it's not going to burn. You're not going to burn out doing it because you love it. And you just think about that concept. You're not going to burn out doing it because you love it. That already tells you that these neurochemical systems well, it's funny. It's funny because I, I, I often I do some public speaking in one of my talks. I talk about how as a fitness professional, I'm a bit of a fraud because I get a lot of respect for the thing that I find easy to everyone else finds hard. So like for me to go for a run, it's not hard at all. It's brushing my teeth. But for people who don't run, they think I'm climbing Mount Everest. And so I'm getting, it's almost like I get an amount of respect for something that I actually don't find hard at all. And it's kind of what you're saying there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. And so let's say, for instance, like, for instance, right now I'm writing, I'm working on this book that, you know, for next year and, and it's hard, it's hard work. I always say editing is like jogging, but writing a book and like trying to put ideas onto paper in a way that's interesting and structured is like deadlifting. You can't yeah. deadlift all day long, at least not legitimate weight yeah. after about 45 minutes <laughs> you're toast. 45 so, is pretty good. <laughs> 45, right, yeah, that's right. And not continuous. So, yeah. so, uh, so absolutely. Uh, mind you, I said earlier, I'm, I'm not, uh, I never would have been a professional athlete. I, <laughs> I try and in shape, but I'm not a professional athlete. So, um, so let's say you have a heart, someone has a hard time with focus and they struggle for focus. The, the key is obviously you want to eliminate distractions and things of that sort, but the key is to establish what we know from the, literature on this learning and plasticity is that if you're a young kid, the brain is very plastic, but in adulthood, meaning 25 or older or so, you need to break those sessions down into very short chunks, maybe even just seven minutes or 10 minutes. So what I would do is I would actually, and I do this, I put my phone, I lock it in a safe, I turn off the internet and I allow myself three minutes to drop my mind into the focus of work. And my mind is all over the place. I sometimes think about, well, I want something out of the fridge or I think about something I was supposed to do, but I refuse to let myself respond to those. I just kind of let the, that happen. And then for seven minutes, I'm going to lean hard into the writing process. I might not accomplish much. It might be very painful. It might be very clunky, but the next round, I might take a break after that about five minutes. I'm going to try and do 10 minutes mm -hmm. and 12 minutes. And what people find is that their ability to focus on that task starts to increase in duration, at least up to a point. Because just like when you exercise, you need to warm up your muscles and joints and connective tissues. When your brain is shifting from one neural circuit regime, surfing Instagram, to a different neural circuit regime, exercising, to the one of creative work, it takes time to activate those circuits and to suppress all the other brain circuits. So, Timers and enforcing a focus is key. The other component that's very important is when I finish one of these, I, I don't pat myself on the back and say, oh, you're doing phenomenally well. All I say is, okay, I was actually able to take a fixed metric, seven minutes of work, and I, was, I accomplished the fixed metric. I don't, I, don't, you know, I don't celebrate it. I just tell myself, okay, I'm capable of that. Let's see if we can push this out to eight minutes or nine minutes. Now, I don't do this obsessively, and I think that it's important that people also understand that neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change and learn and get better at focusing and learning included in that, is triggered by focus, 
the more intense the focus, the more, the more pronounced that trigger is. But the actual changes in the brain and nervous system that lead to better skill development, changes in memory, changes in motor patterns, et cetera, those happen during sleep and in periods of rest when we're not focusing on the thing that we're trying to do. So I think people need to lean hard into a process that they're trying to learn or develop. And then they need to, what I call deliberate disengagement. They need to deliberately disengage from that process and allow the connections to form. And this is because the changes in the brain that get you better at learning and learning anything at all are controlled largely by a molecule called acetylcholine that spotlights or marks like a highlighter pen, the, the connections, the synapses in the brain that then later need to chemicals come in and believe it or not, cells actually come in and like little construction workers and actually seal up those synapses that so they work better the next time more reflexively. Mm -hmm. So I think the important thing to for people to understand is yes, self-reward is important. Small chunks of time in which you're working hard, reward those periods, those periods of time can extend. And of course, the literature is full of examples where if you increase the incentive, so for instance, I, let's say I owe you, I decide that um, you know, I owe you 500,000 US dollars if I don't accomplish a goal, absolutely, more noradrenaline is gonna be secreted and I'm gonna focus better. If, or we could make it um, you know, some other goal. So fear, uh, deadlines, rewards, you're allowed to switch those up. And I think people have been kind of obsessed of like, what's the inspirational thing? What's the pill? What's the thing that's gonna allow me to just trampoline up to the top of the mountain? And I'll tell you this right now, if you look at, and you know this from your own experience and you've done this, if you look at superior athletes, superior academics, superior performers, superior anything, physicians, whatever, teachers, therapists, what you find is, they have a vast kit of incentives, punishment, reward. They know how to do this over different timescales and they know how to control this process internally and they don't look to one thing as the thing that's gonna deliver them to their goal. They understand that this is a process. It's just like a really good cook needs more than um, you know, flour, water, yeah. butter. It's like Batman with a bat belt. He's got all these tools that he can just pull out when he needs them. Absolutely. So yeah. you should try them and work with them and pick a few and work with them. And I think what's, what's interesting is I've, as I've spent time with these elite military communities or athletes or academics or, or a good friend who's a neurosurgeon, it's the hardest profession in, in medicine by far. I mean, you know, just the training they go through is remarkable. You start hearing the same themes over and over again. And the most important thing is to understand that the agitation and the stress that you feel is crucial to getting you moving. But the goal is then to move. And once you're moving, then you can start invoking these dopamine rewards, which will allow you more fuel to keep moving. And again, this is all tacked not to books that have been published in the last 20 years about psychological concepts, not to neuroscience te textbooks. This was all developed by Mother Nature, God, the universe, whatever your, your leanings are, they all work. This was embedded in us. These neural circuits were embedded in every animal that engages in goal-directed behavior and that has social bonds. Dogs have it, wolves have it, humans have it, cows have it. It's just that we need to think about what those milestones are and how we're going to move toward them. And I think for people that get kind of dizzy and kind of overwhelmed by all the concepts that are out there and the different ways to approach this, 
they're all anchored in the same things, the same five, like we talked about norepinephrine and adrenaline, effort. Talk about dopamine, rewards and mile, for milestones and ultimate goals and rewards. We talked about serotonin, which is essentially rewards for things that you already possess and are your immediate experience. Things like food, things like being in contact with a loved one, the thoughts of loved ones, et cetera. Gratitude. We think about focus, acetylcholine. This is true in animals and it's true in humans. And so these are the, um, the, the macronutrients or the primary colors, if you will, from which all paintings of life or lives are made or from which all meals are, are produced, right? It's about how they're combined. And I think if people just start leaning into these processes and understanding what's going on a little bit, what they'll find is they can get very good at the overall logic and structure of this very quickly. And then it can be translated across from running to schoolwork, from schoolwork yeah. to athletics. It's not a coincidence that some of the you know, there are a lot of scientists that um, I wish would exercise more because I worry about my colleagues getting sick and dying mm -hmm. uh, too young. But there's, I would say that among the physicians in particular that I know, because they, um, and many of the scientists, for instance, there's the Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist at Columbia University who's still very active. His mind is very active into his 90s. And he swims, uh, you know, about a mile a day or three times a week, I think now in his late 90s. Yeah. And he understands that these even just physical activity can enhance the function of the brain. And part of that is the molecules that are secreted that preserve neurons, et cetera. But part of it also is the fact that the same circuits in the brain that you use to ride a bike uphill and push yourself and learn to not be ex exhausted in the process, but to reward the, the wins as you go, those same circuits are the ones that allow you to lean into your business life and lean yeah. into your so it's family It's transferable, life. isn't it? It's, it's everything. You don't get a separate set of circuits for one set of goals in life versus another. It's one set of goal-directed circuits, one set of dopamine-related circuits. And so in the end, Mother Nature deliberately wired us in these very generic ways because in doing so, she ensured that when regardless of habitat, growing up in New Zealand or in you know, South Bay, San Francisco, for me, that we could figure out what we needed to figure out along mm. the way. And so at, at a, you know, right now, it's so, such a big part of the, you know, what's happening in, in the world is we're seeing with COVID and we're seeing with all these recent really tragic things around racial inequities and this kind of thing, our biological machinery of the brain and nervous system is identical. And we all possess these circuits. And so it's so vital that people understand that that we have these, these things embedded, these cells and these chemicals, that we were born with them and we die with them. And, it's, and we can use them. We can implement them. So, so, so you know, you, you, you're really trying, we want to be able to influence these chemicals to, to our advantage to be able to live a life in a much better way, ultimately, is what you're saying there. Is it, is it, is it like, because some people are like, I just pessimist. And they may be listening to this and then there's Andrew, you don't get it. I just, I always see the glass half empty. Um, or, you know, some people are just a bit of a Debbie Downer. Sure. What does that person? What does that person need to do? Yeah. So if we look at, um, let's do a parallel with uh, for a moment with like obesity. So you know, many of us would say, okay, look, it's nowadays there's so much information out there about health and fitness. You'd say, well, if somebody is overweight, what do they need to do? Exercise, maybe some intermittent fasting, drink a lot of water, get some good sleep, and we know, right? Yeah. We know yeah. the it's how not is easy. Yeah. 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 The, the how is easy. Yeah. But some people. Let's be fair so to, the, to certain people, they reach a point with their physicality that just doing those things 
becomes challenging. They, it's, it's, it's not impossible. There are these incredible stories on YouTube of, I think the one that's most salient is the one of the really overweight guy who starts doing yoga yeah, and like a year right. later. Yeah, that's time course. Remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So inspiring. Like he's falling over and all this stuff. Yeah. And then like a year later, so he's really doing impressive stuff. He's transformed his physicality. People do it. In the, in the parallel example of the mind, you know, we say, well, how to be happy? Well, you know, I talk about this a lot on Instagram, you know, get, get sunlight in the morning. It triggers the release of certain neurochemicals. These are real phenomena. You know, you want to lean into effort, learn to reward the effort process, gratitude, et cetera, social connection. But for some people, they're clinically depressed and they don't have access. We don't understand if we're not clinically depressed, but they really don't have access in the same way to just do it. The whole Nike thing, just do yeah, it is a yeah. beautiful concept, but how to just do it is really a lot of what we're discussing today, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just do it is a wonderful concept, but it, um, it falls short when somebody is really back on their heels to the point where they can't, they're neurochemically depleted to the point where they can't get going, all right? Mm -hmm. So, or they experienced a childhood where they had a ton of adrenaline in their system, but there was so much trauma yeah. that the feeling of adrenaline has nothing to do for them has nothing to do with effort and moving toward a better life. It's scary, overwhelming, and even traumatizing. So yeah. that, you know, so what do they do? Well, I think it's very important first that we identify the nature of that problem. That the problem is that these chemicals that we were talking about, they are very generic. And we talked about why that's an advantage. But their disadvantage is that when they become attached to things that aren't good for us, so dopamine can be attached to cocaine use, which is yeah. not good for us, and life depletes, right? Or um, serotonin can be attached to just eating, rest and digest, you secrete serotonin and people are just eating and eating and then pretty soon you got health issues and obesity and this kind of thing. Mm. So the key is to find some wedge or entry point into the self. Now, some people do that through meditation. Some people start diving deep into backstory and trauma. Some people just absolutely punish themselves in some way that is designed to force themselves into change. You know, they will, yeah. um, for instance, you know, they have to hit rock bottom, go yeah. to rehab, yeah. lose their family. You know, I think that the key is to understand for most people, and I hear I'm painting with a broad brush, but for people that are pessimistic if, versus clinically depressed, let's just talk about pessimism. There's an experiment that was done by a guy named Robert Heath in the 1960s, recording from different areas of the human brain. And humans were allowed to stimulate any part of the brain they wanted. You couldn't do this experiment nowadays. You'd never get approved. It. It was just, and there were areas of the brain that they would stimulate and it would make them feel drunk. There were other areas of the brain that they would stimulate and it would make them feel happy or sexually aroused or whatever. Yeah. The number one area of the brain that people chose to stimulate was an area of the brain that allowed them to feel mild frustration and anger. And I thought, oh my goodness, like how weird is that? Yeah. But you know, we can get attached, we can get dopamine hits from complaining and frustration and from arguing. And we know people like this and from cynicism. However, well, let's be honest, in the world today, you know, we're seeing the divides and the, the, the divide is a lot about that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the interesting thing is we go back to norepinephrine. If you look at communities or groups that have to work with high cohesion in very trying environments. So think of, um, for instance, again, elite military comes to mind. Cynicism there is, can actually be deadly. Cynicism in the workplace can be deadly. We, it spreads very quickly through a process. This is a real chemical process called emotional contagion. Yeah. 
where positive feelings can spread, but you know what spreads faster are negative feelings, stress yeah. and anxiety. And you can understand why that would be because it would preserve ourselves in times of stress and pressure. Cynicism, because it, it is depleting, it doesn't add energy. It, it makes you continue to spend and secrete norepinephrine, means that you will perform less well. Dopamine and serotonin, which are the molecules of reward and gratitude, they are essentially like adding fuel to the tank. And so when somebody is cynical, not only can it spread quickly through an environment, but it actually is limiting performance. When you look at real high performers, they are very cautious about the kind of energy that they participate in. Some people mm. have negative thoughts, but they refuse to articulate them. Actually, I saw, I don't know him. So I, you know, out of respect for the fact that I've never met him, I'm, I'm cautious to like, I don't want to put words in somebody's mouth, but there's a guy who's now doing a lot of public facing stuff on Instagram and elsewhere. Um, Chad Wright, I think he's a no. former Navy SEAL guy. I think he's an ultra guy. And he talks about, um, and check out his stuff. I think it's really interesting about how speaking words of, of cynicism and defeat is very different than thinking them. And I think he's on to something very powerful because I think what he's identified is the fact that when we say something, it makes it that much more real. Yeah. When we, you know, it's, it's one step beyond just thinking something. And yeah. cynicism and, and admitting defeat are very different than feeling cynical and feeling defeated. So I think that cynicism is terrible. If I had gotten cynical about, look, science is a hard career, I'll be honest. There are times when 99% of the time people are telling you, this is what's wrong with your paper. This is what's wrong with your grant. And what yeah. they're testing for is your ability to come back and keep revising it, revising it. And finally they go, you win, you get in. Yeah. And what I see is that successful scientists are people who can take a lot of criticism and keep coming back and keep responding to that criticism, keep coming back. Yeah. And so if you become cynical, you fail. And I've seen this. I mean, I've been fortunate that the people who have come to my lab have had a really good spirit, but I've seen a lot of very talented, extremely smart students in science at excellent institutions fail because of their cynicism. Mm -hmm. I've seen athletes fail from cynicism. I've seen people recover slowly from injury because of cynicism. And when you start taking an, a, a stance of positivity, it can irritate people. I think that nowadays, you know, it's like being positive is like some people are, are put off by that and they think, yeah. oh, you're just positive stuff. But think about how much energy is provided by the neurochemicals that we were talking about before. And think about how much it's depleted by cynicism. Look, I don't wake up feeling great every morning. I have lows just like everybody else. But cynicism is different. Being what you said, like a Debbie Downer mm -hmm. is, or, you know, if somebody who's always pessimistic, they are, we now know there's good evidence, good studies that they are depleting their energy. They're depleting their health. It's essentially, it's the junk food of the nervous system. So, and so how do they change it? How do they change it? Yeah. They, well, they need to experience one of two things. They either need to be punished or they need to be rewarded for doing the opposite. Okay. You know, in the end, we're pretty simple animals. Yeah, okay. So they could be rewarded for anyone who's trained dogs. You know, there's this notion of, you know, you train them, you know, uh, reward them for catch them doing something right and reward them. Yeah. And they move towards that because they yeah. don't well, know as a fitness instructor, I do that, you know, like I'm, I'm looking for that moment and then I give them the love, you know, like it's a, yeah. it's a simple strategy. My approach is um, essentially to do what I'm doing now, which is to inform people. If you want to be cyn cynical and negative and express that, and maybe there's an appropriate time to do that. Fine. But you are, you're damaging the self. You are, you are 
putting up walls. I think once people understand that these thought patterns and these speech patterns actually have a chemical signature, it changes their relationship to them. Yeah. You know, I think one of the mistakes of the wellness community was the statement that every cell in your body hears every statement that every thought that you have. What a scary concept. I hate that idea. First of all, it's not true. I would love to have <laughs> well, it's important. Where, where are the data that shows that? Like there's no data on that. Like there's no data. What happens is thought patterns and behavioral patterns create neurochemical patterns of dopamine or norepinephrine or serotonin. And of course, it's a mixture. Just like you don't bake just with flour, you, you, you know, it's a mixture. Gratitude isn't just serotonin. It's serotonin and some dopamine and some oxytocin. It's, you know, these are cocktails of things. Mm. So thought patterns create chemical patterns, which create behavioral patterns. Behavioral patterns create chemical patterns, which create thought patterns. Yeah. But the idea that every thought is heard by every cell in your body is really scary because what if I wake up in the morning and I think, ugh, life is really hard or I don't even know that I want to continue doing what I'm doing. You know, you don't want to scare people into thinking that they can't have a thought. So the way I like to think about thoughts is from a neuroscience perspective, of course, which is thoughts are one part perception and one part memory. And it's very hard to suppress thought. Very, very hard to suppress thoughts. In fact, people say, don't think about an elephant. You just think about an elephant, yeah, right? Yeah. But, but thoughts are enough like actions, enough like picking up a glass over here in the, you know, in the corner of my table and setting it down again because we can introduce thoughts. People forget that even if you have a set of negative or terrible thoughts, you can voluntarily say, you know what? I'm going to have a thought that I, there might be, I'm not convinced, but there might be a possibility of feeling differently. Or I'm going to have a thought that Tomorrow, I'm going to do better than I did today because today, frankly, I was not on my A game and I, I lost my cool or something like that. I'm going to introduce a thought. So I think we need to liberate people from the idea that they can control their thoughts through a process of suppressing thoughts. Won't work, never will work. Doesn't work. Just like suppressing stress by telling yourself doesn't work. Why? Because the mind cannot control the mind alone. You need to include the body. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what we can do is we can decide to introduce positive thoughts. So if somebody is really intent on being a curmudgeon and negative, they are not going to get out of that unless they, they decide. But once they decide, there'd be I'd be lying if I said all they have to do is just decide. They have to start introducing positive thoughts and actions and rewarding themselves for those actions in the same way they would reward themselves for any kind of thing. The, the key thing about neuroplasticity in adulthood, the ch to change your brain in adulthood, it has to be self-directed. I have to do it for me. You have to do it for you. No one can make another adult's brain better without their permission. Mm -hmm. You can make a kid's brain better without their permission because when we're kids, when we're passively exp exposed to things, for better or for worse, that changes our brain. Trauma on the bad hand, positive experiences on the other. Sport and school and social enrichment on the one hand, trauma on the other. But when we reach age 25 or so, at that point, there's a tremendous shift in the way the brain circuits work. And in order to change them, which we can, we have to direct those changes. It, it's, it's a subtle but really important thing. It's why I call it self-directed adaptive plasticity. It's a mouthful. I wish I had a shorter yeah. way of, of describing it, but it's self-directed. You have to do it for you. I have to do it for me. I can't do it for you. 
But if you if people want to do this, there are mechanisms, and they they those mechanisms come in the form of chemicals, or the, and those chemicals come in the form of certain actions, which are the reward systems and the gratitude and all the other things we were talking about before: growth mindset, gratitude. Sometimes people do need to lean to a chemical support. So for somebody that's clinically depressed and has their serotonin is too low, it might be appropriate to get a doctor provided prescription to a drug that will provide more serotonin to get them out of that rut. But then of course they need to live correctly. Mm. For some people, it's too little dopamine. So there are antidepressants like Wellbutrin that provide dopamine and norepinephrine and tend to give people more energy so they can lean into effort when they're clinically depressed. They don't work for everybody. And there are some side effects associated with these, but that's why those drugs exist. There's a, but once you're in a regime of chemical enhancement and you're going to you know, try to improve your life, the behaviors are crucial. I have a friend, he's a physician, and he has a great saying. He says, better living through chemistry still requires better living. Yeah, so, nice. you know, yeah. there's no, yeah. You, so sometimes people need a, a chemical nudge. Yeah. They need that support and that help. Uh, and I think under conditions where they do, it's valid. Some people are clinically and chemically depressed and they can get themselves out of it with mindset and behaviors. Some people are clinically and chemically depressed and they will not be able to get themselves out of those mindsets at, with just behavior alone and mindset alone. And they need some pharmacologic support. And I, I, I think, I'm sorry, I think it's crucial. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that, you know, especially on Instagram, a lot of the people that in the wellness community are very anti-pharma. They're like, these drug companies are evil. Yeah. Look, the drug companies aren't evil. The drug companies are no more evil than the misinformation that's being spread in the wellness community. That breathing in a certain way is going to release DMT from your pineal, which is complete hooey, frankly. Yeah. There's not enough, first of all, there's not enough DMT there. And second of all, show me the study. And like yeah. people make stuff up, but- the pharma community, there are problems like the opioid crisis and things yeah. like that. But the key is it's a different solution for everybody. Yeah. Um, one of the, my friend who actually put me on to you, um, a guy called Paul Stead, I said, oh, you've got a question for him. He came back and he said, he wants to talk about children. He's got, I'd like to really like to have him talk about children and the aspects that can drive kids' behavior, positive feedback loops for kids, social online bullying. He was just saying that a young girl, and, uh, sorry, a young 12-year-old girl has just committed suicide at his son's school. So, you know, like, what, what advice do you give? Because it's hard being a parent, and we all try to do our best. Um, just what advice would you give around children? Yeah, so this, is a, this topic hits very close to home, actually, because um, so the high school I went to, or that I should have gone to because I wasn't there very often. <laughs> we were, we were I, tell similar, you, I tell you, <laughs> I could tell you a lot about the, I could tell you about the, cur a lot about the curbs in the parking lot that I was. But that high school is actually um, famous for all for, it's an excellent school, but it's famous for some really tragic reasons too. It was written up in the New York times that high school has the highest percentage of suicides for any high school in the country. Wow. And, yeah, I think they've had dozens of suicides. It's really tragic. And, um, and I've lost friends to suicide. I think the, you know, online bullying is something that didn't exist when I was young because there wasn't an online uh, for that to happen. But nonetheless, so there's some crucial tools that I think we need to give children and parents. First of all, there's been no directive for what the expectation is around stress. On the one hand, we know that kids have to exert effort in order to improve. 
They're going to be topics that are hard in school that they're going to need to lean into and learn that they're not going to perform well in. And on the other hand, we don't want to, you know, hit them with failure over and over again to the point where they're super stressed. So I hear this in two forms, either the super high achievers that are afraid to get a B or a B minus or a C or, you know, God forbid a D. And then you hear of the kids who just, they give up because they, they can't lean into things they're not really good at. So I think we need to create a relationship with the stress response, the physiological response, and give kids tools of two kinds. I think adults need them also. One type of tool that allows them to suppress their stress level when it's too high so that they can continue to search and forage for new information, go into social environments that for them might be a little scary, even though those environments are healthy. Then we need a second set of tools that allows them to raise their threshold on what they experience as stressful. Okay. One of the reasons why people who have trauma and struggle early in life are very successful when they finally get their act together is they tend to have a very high threshold for stress because they know what it's like to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I'll tell you as hard, you know, I pull, I still pull, I don't recommend this, but I still pull a lot of all nighters and very long days. And they're days that are very, very stressful for me. And it never feels as bad as being a 17 year old kid who doesn't know where his life is going. Yeah. The feeling for me that the, the emergency point is so far out there that I just, I can continue to lean into that. But we don't, also don't want to traumatize our kids just to give them a life experience. That's <laughs> yeah. not good either. Yeah. So what do we do? What do we do? We teach them tools that are based in neuroscience and physiology to learn to control that internal state, to control their internal state. So there are two tools that I'm aware of that are exceptionally powerful. My lab's working on some of these. Other people have worked on them as well. They're all anchored in respiration. Why breathing and respiration? Well, everyone has a, has a diaphragm and can voluntarily control their lungs. The diaphragm and the lungs are powerful levers or dials on our mental state. But even in the world of breathing and whatnot, people get confused. They say, well, we should meditate and be mindful, but it's hard to measure and teach mindfulness. How do you do that? It takes a lot of skill. And what we want is we need the push-up of the, of the mind, right? We need the pull-up of the mind. We need the squat and the, you know, the run, jog, you know, jumping jacks of the mind. Breathing is that tool. And so what I think kids and adults should all have is one tool to push back on stress. And the tool is very simple. It's based on three published papers in quality journals. We have a set of neurons in our brainstem that are responsible for what we call physiological size. When you inhale and then inhale again quickly before you exhale, you fill the sacs of the lungs, the alveoli of the lungs, maximally, and it pulls carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream so that when you exhale, you unload carbon dioxide at a maximal level. It is the fastest way that I'm aware of to unload carbon dioxide and shift down the level of stress and increase the level of calm. So it's typically done two inhales through the nose and one exhale through the mouth. So it looks something like this. Okay. Very simple. You could do it all through the mouth if you want or all through the nose if you want. It's a weird pattern of breathing that's different than just take a deep breath or just exhale. It's powerful because it's actually a neural circuit that was designed to kick in under conditions of claustrophobia that was recently published in the journal Cell Reports. And when people 
have too much carbon dioxide in their system during sleep, they naturally, these neurons oh, okay. kick in and they do these sighs. So this isn't a breathing pattern that I invented. This is a breathing pattern that's governed by a set of neurons that everyone has that mother nature invented to quickly balance the ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. And when a child or a parent or anyone is feeling too stressed, you do this double inhale, long exhale, and you very quickly reduce your level of stress, which will mm -hmm. allow you, you reducing the level of norepinephrine to then continue in the endeavor that you're in, if that's what's appropriate. Like, so maybe it's learning maths, maybe it's exercise, maybe it's listening in a hard conversation where you feel triggered. I should just tell people the heart rate tends to come down about 20 seconds later. People are kind of obsessed with heart rate. They feel their heart going and they think, oh, it's not working. I'm not calming down. It takes 20 seconds or so. You don't want your heart rate to go down quickly. That's called brachycardia and you can pass out. Not good. <laughs> Two or three of those physiological size is the best tool that I'm aware of to limit your stress. That's a good tool for calming yourself. The tool that's going to be best for increasing your stress threshold well, you have choices. One would be ice bath, cold shower, some crucible event where, you know, you march into the night for, you know, 20 hours or you do a marathon. But let's be honest, try and persuade a kid to do something they don't want to do. It's very challenging. But if they can be convinced or told that the, the ability to raise their stress threshold will make them feel better in a variety of environments, then it's very simple. The way that I think is most powerful is to do super oxygenated breathing. So this would involve doing 20 or 30 breaths quickly. <sighs> Regardless of who it is, by about the 20th or 30th breath, they're going to feel agitated, not good. You're self-creating stress. And then you exhale all your air. <sighs> and you sit with lungs empty for about 15 to 20 seconds. The goal is to learn how to be calm when you have a lot of adrenaline in your system. Okay. Now I should just point out a few things. Don't do this near water in case you pass out, you don't want to drown. Don't do this while driving. Don't do this, in a, you know, don't be, people just need to be smart about how they do this. But it's a very quick way of, it's the same thing that happens when you get into an ice bath or take a cold shower. You're breathing, adrenaline hits your system. When adrenaline hits your system and you learn how to be calm, it's the same thing as when you learn how to drive a car on nice, smooth concrete. Great. But the first time you drive on a gravel road and you're, or slippery or in fog or in the rain, it's scary. Learning how to calm yourself with a high adrenaline in your system is, I think, one of the most powerful tools that we can teach our kids and that we can teach ourselves. So now we have two tools, both anchored in physiology, one designed to calm us the double inhale, exhale, maybe do it one to three times if you need to, to calm yourself. You can use that anytime you want. You don't have to practice it like a meditation practice. You can use it during exercise. You can use it between sets in the gym. You can use it while studying. You can do it in conversation. And then another tool designed to increase our threshold for stress. Now, is this going to keep someone who's depressed from committing suicide? I don't know. There are a lot of factors there. But what I do know is that anxiety and stress and the inability to regulate our internal state is the first step towards most bad decisions, violence yeah. towards ourselves or towards others. Saying something when we should just listen, right? Hitting somebody when we should not do that. You know, um, saying well, I quit. Let's be honest. You know, I mean, most, there are a million examples. 
Well, no, but even like suicide events are often just a trigger moment, you know, like it's just, a, it's a response to a moment, isn't it? When we look at actually suicide, it's not something that's built up for long periods of time. When you actually look at the kind of when suicide happens, it's just that there's been a traumatic event in a moment and people respond very dramatically to that response. So if they had tools like the ones you're talking about here and identify that moment, maybe they can get through that moment to get to a better place. We all need to, absolutely, you nailed it. We all need to learn to recognize the adrenaline pulse yeah. and realize, going back to something I said earlier, it's generic. It makes us feel activated. And what is it designed to do? It's designed to get us to say something or do something. This is why when you're activated, it's hard not to interrupt. You know, I've been in hard conversations and so, and I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to, and someone says something and I, I fire off yeah. and it's like, damn it. What happened? Well, adrenaline happened. Remember adrenaline is something happens. It could be anything. Car crash could be someone says something triggering. You see a, a text message that's upsetting. Someone bullies you. The signal takes half a second, 500 milliseconds to hit your adrenals and be liberated in your system and mobilize you. So one of the big failures of science and wellness and psychology has been to tell people that they, learn, they need to learn how to not get stressed. 500 milliseconds, yeah. you cannot sidestep that. No. What, you need, what we all need to learn to do is to let the adrenaline hit because it's gonna hit many times in your life, my life, everyone's life, and learn to recognize that and maintain clarity of mind and action. Maintain clarity of decision. And if we teach kids this, they are going to be so much better off than any of us were. Me getting into fights when I was a teenager or saying the wrong thing. You look at who, people who are incarcerated, you can trace almost every circumstance back to a point where they didn't regulate their state well. Yeah. Now, you've got some true sociopaths, of course, yeah. that deliberately want to hurt and injure people. But most errors in life are errors of response to adrenaline, not the adrenaline response itself. Okay. Yeah. So let's just teach people. Let's teach kids. This is this thing called adrenaline. It is natural and it's healthy. And here's how you can learn to react to it better. Telling someone just stay calm, relax, doesn't work. So some, so the key is we need to train ourselves and we need to train kids. And the way to do that, one way is the super oxygenated breathing. So 25 or 30 breaths, exhale, hold your breath for about 15, 20 seconds, repeat maybe two or three times. What you quickly find and they'll find is that when adrenaline hits in real life, they don't get behaviorally triggered. They, know they don't start saying and doing the wrong thing. Now, I want to just point out because what I described is similar to a lot of forms of breath work like Tumo breathing, um, Wim Hof type breathing is a little bit similar. I'm not a fan of inhale, inhales with breath holds because of the pressure it puts in the cardiopulmonary system. Um, so that's separate. What I described also could be achieved by running up a hill, getting a lot of adrenaline in your system, and then learning how to quickly calm yourself down or learning how to be in the adrenaline response. But it's different when we enjoy something. This is, I have a colleague who's in psychiatry at Stanford. His name is David Spiegel, incredibly talented um, scientist and physician. And he says, look, when it comes to trauma and stress, it's not just about the state that you're in. It's about how you got there and whether or not you had anything to do with it. So when you self-induce these modes of stress and you learn to calm yourself, it's a wonderful training for being able to lean into life and experience the ability to not react. And the field of meditation and mindfulness has been, you know, we've been bombarded with this mindfulness thing for years. People have talked about the gap, 
between stimulus and response. Really? Like, how do I psychologically feel into that gap? Because when someone says something really triggering, or, you know, I tend to have a bit of a kind of a protector mode. So when someone I care about has been hurt by somebody else, I immediately feel like I want to go into reaction. It's yeah. usually not the thing at me. It's a, you know, thing that, um, that's just the way I'm wired. But there too, we need to be thoughtful about how we react. So I think two modes to answer your friend's question, we got to teach our kids how to lower their stress and we got to teach our kids how to increase their threshold for stress. And I think that same process can allow them to take a subject that's hard for them and say, okay, this might not be my life path, but having some level of competency in English literature or math or physical activity it might not be my forte. Yeah. It might not be what I'm saying. The value was teaching me. Yeah. Yeah. But you need that. I mean, you can't say, um, you know, we all are trying to find our right life and our right path. But I think that we've, we believe that there's this narrow trench in which everything's going to be very, you know, flowy and easy. Yeah. Forget it. You know, forget it. Even if you're the most successful musician in the world because music's your thing, you better be damn good at business or find someone who is or you're going to crash and burn. And people who are very successful learn to either outsource the things they're not good at, but that takes money and it takes prior success, okay? Mm, yeah. Or yeah. they learn to be just good enough at certain things that they can get by so that eventually they can pour themselves into the things that are most crucial. But the ability to calm yourself in stress, the ability to raise your ceiling on stress, I think is absolutely transformative for everybody. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but just uh, kind of two little more quick questions. Where's your struggle? Because it's interesting, you know, like you and I, we're very lucky. Um, we have audiences and we have a platform. And um, and sometimes I think that people in our, in our position get put on this platform, which makes us unreal. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like uh, and people see us in a light that just, just don't think we're human. And uh, it's not true. But I also think it's really important that as, as a leader and as, a, as someone who's kind of spreading a message to kind of share what are the things that you need to work on to, you know, currently in yourself? Um, great question. Hard question. Thanks for uh, <laughs> you know, uh, turning that uh, mirror uh, on me. Um, you know, I have days where even the smallest things are really a struggle. Um, so I'm a big believer in getting sunlight in my eyes first thing in the morning before looking at my phone intent, some days, just an intense struggle. And I am so disappointed in myself at my inability to just limit my engagement with uh, devices. Mm. There are days where, um, I would say my major struggle these days is being so reactive to opportunities to, um, engage that I, lose track of the bigger picture and the goal, you know, just stacking my, I tend to have a lot of energy. So I tend to just stack my schedule back to back to back to back with things. When I know that there are a few things, you know, my writing projects, my connections with a few uh, select people uh, my laboratory, those are the things that deserve the most time and attention. And so the struggle for me, it's not simply saying the ability to say no, it's the ability to stay really conscious of what the bigger end goals are. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like, I'll be very honest because you were quite generous in giving me this opportunity at the beginning to talk about my backstory. You know, I've definitely, there have been times in my career where I was, uh, I think I struggled with depression and anxiety and, um, and I operated from a place of effort that was depleting. I was, you know, too noradrenergic, too much adrenaline. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then too much dopamine. I would kind of like oscillate into those high, high stress regimes. It took me a long time to figure out that gratitude and stillness could reset me in a way that would give me more longevity in terms of my pursuits. I, there are days that are extremely hard. I, I have a funny, um, uh, not funny in the humorous way, but kind of a sad um, history in science in the sense that my first ad advisor and mentor was incredible, this guy that turned me on to science. Um, my second mentor was incredible, just a brilliant and wonderful woman was my PhD advisor. And then my postdoc advisor, super supportive. He was very involved in um, gender advocacy in science. His name was Ben Barris. You can look him up on Wikipedia. He's done phenomenal work. The first one killed himself. Harry killed himself. Barbara died of cancer at 50. And Ben died of cancer at 63. And so the joke in my community is like, I'm the common denominator. It must <laughs> stay away from you. Because <laughs> uh, I know it's terrible. And so there are days, I'll be honest, where I just think um, like where I, I get back on my heels and I, and I feel like, goodness, you know, what, what did I do to, to find those incredible people? And what did I do to um, find those people that were fated to leave early? I feel, I feel a bit orphaned sometimes in my career path. And so these days, what I've realized is I, just like when I was younger and my family dissolved, I had to grow up really fast as a kid. I had to figure it out. It really felt like life or death for me, um, that 13 to 19 stretch. And then once I got into science, I had these elders and these mentors, and then they, they died or they killed themselves. Yeah. And so I had to grow up really quickly. I mean, I'm 45 now. I'm a grown-up. I'm an adult. So yeah. it's appropriate for me to be in a position of giving information and leading and, and teaching people. But in science, there's a real mentoring process. And I realized, I was like, damn it, I feel orphaned again. And so the, you asked, what's the struggle? And I think I've arrived at it now, having said a lot of other things, so forgive me. But I think the struggle for me is to keep their memory as a, a sense of joy and appreciation because I'm so grateful that I had the, the experience of them and to not feel sorry for myself that I don't get to go to their retirement parties, that they won't see um, the public education bit because yeah. I like to think that they would be proud of me, that I don't, to not fall into a trap of feeling sorry for myself uh, and instead yeah. to see the opportunity to grow up quickly in my career as an opportunity it, look, it's scary. I'll be honest. There are times I'm like doing, not a lot of scientists do a lot of public education. There are people in the scientific community who think, oh, you're outside your lane, stay in your lab. And I refuse to do that because I believe I have a purpose in doing this and I believe mm -hmm. in it so strongly. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel a little scared sometimes or a lot scared that I'll be misunderstood and so, and feeling very much alone. And so I think I have great friendships. I'm blessed with great friendships. I've reconnected with my family. I have a wonderful relationship with my bulldog. I love animals and he's wonderful. But there are times when I, frankly, um, the struggle nowadays is there are times when I feel very much out on my own. And then, and the temptation is to feel sad and, for sorry, and sorry for myself. And instead what I try and do, and I don't always succeed, is say, what an amazing opportunity and I literally try and carry the, the spirit, the, the internal sense of Harry and Barbara and Ben with me and feel like they're, you know, nudging me from behind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were all very funny and very, um, had, they had mean sense of, of humor. Yeah, they were yeah. each one of them. Yeah. And I sometimes hear their voices telling me, like making fun of me. 
and then telling me to keep going. Yeah. And um, Ben in particular had a very cruel sense of humor, but he used to say something. He had three sayings that were really important. He's a phenomenal human being. He said, the key is give until it hurts and then give more. Mm-hmm. And I think of that was one. And I think when it's painful and you feel like you're just giving, giving, give more. And he's right. That's where the, the, the relief comes actually, believe it or not. Yeah. And he also used to say, when you're in doubt, whatever you're doing, just keep going, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I totally agree you know, with that. Yeah. That was Ben. That was Ben. Just keep going. And then the other thing was he said when you're, cause he was a real pioneer. He pioneered two areas of science. One is the study of these cells called glia, which everyone thought were meaningless cells. And they're actually very important cells. And the other thing was he did so much for gender equality and advocacy for people in science. And he said, I'll never forget. Cause I watched him die. I was, I was with him the year that he died and he was, it was a really sad demise and it came way too early. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, there's this light that you see early on that we all have. And he was not a spiritual religious guy. He said, there's this light and that light is gradually put out or gradually enhanced and made brighter by our interactions with other people. And he said, he said, whatever you do, don't put out people's lights. And if you're not going to make their lives brighter, walk away but wherever you can try and you know add some some oil to those lamps and it's very metaphorical for a guy he was a physician and a scientist and so people that know him will laugh that i'm saying this because he was not a again not a religious or spiritual person but he was right it was like if we can learn to attach reward to the process of trying to go and enhance this light he talked about this light inside of people he did it long before he was sick so this wasn't a dying man's thing So what I struggle with these days is staying out of my own feelings of, you know, self-sympathy or whatever, and staying in that mode of give until it hurts, then give more, right? Whatever you're doing, keep going. So stay in action and add oil to people's lamps and just keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, nice. Just one last question because I've never taken a lot of your time. Well, just, just science, you know, like science is so important and we live in this time where science seems to be being undermined. Um, I'd just love to hear you hear your thoughts on that and what would be your advice to the listener. Now, obviously the listener of this kind of a show is someone who's probably a bit more science scientifically engaged, but um, just, I'm sure it's a frustrating time being a scientist in, in this regard. Um, maybe just share your thoughts on this. Okay. So yeah, at risk of, um, I, um, uh, I have the, t- I have the time. The question is whether or not you have the time. So um, I'm trying, I'm trying to, there's a joke. Well, well, maybe, in maybe, maybe, maybe she, uh, what's a good process for people who aren't scientists to think yeah. about these things. Yeah. So for, first of all, um, I take a, uh, the stance that if people are not, um, convinced that science is important or worse, if people are thinking that science is bad in any way or for whatever reason, I think we need to look at the failures of the scientific community to communicate science and to represent ourselves in ways that it's going to bring people along. You know, one of the reasons I'm on this podcast, one of the reasons that I'm out there on Instagram is because I want to show that scientists are real people with real concerns and real lives, and they are doing the best they can, and that the scientific process has some merit and some value. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. It is not the only answer, but it has real merit and value. 
religious folks, I just want to say, I have respect for religion. In fact, the director of the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. is a very religious person. His name is Francis Collins, and you can there's a lot online about him and his relationship to that. So a life in science and religion are not incompatible. It's not necessary, but it's not incompatible. I think most people don't even know that. And that tells me that there's been a failure to communicate just even that simple fact. I, th- I would love it if people would embrace a scientific mindset as one of the available mindsets to, with which to move through life. Here's a couple examples of how they might do that. One, when you're a scientist, you know you're a scientist because when you see something that excites you, you slow down. If people would just slow down when they see something that validates a good feeling or makes them feel good, collect a little more data. What we know is that if you want to reduce variability, this is science geeky speak, you increase your sample size. What does that mean? That means if I'm measuring average height and I go into a basketball, pro basketball game, and I measure two players that are seven feet tall and I walk away, I'm going to get a very skewed representation of height. I need to collect larger sample size, bigger than the team, so that eventually I've got the people in the bleachers too, and then I'll get to the real answer. So let's think scientifically about what's going on in the world. I do this by, I log on to one website for news. I look at something. I slow down when I see something that excites me or triggers me. Then I look at another website, then another. I look at conflicting websites, and then I draw my conclusion. I I collect large samples from different sources, and then I aggregate them, and I come up with a conclusion for myself. We've not been taught that scientific process of just sample size, you know, and that's not, and there not, it's not even a scientific facts. That's just the scientific method, the scientific process. The other thing is that a scientific method isn't perfect, but it has a structure that you can work with. For people that feel confused or feel that life is overwhelming, science is often a wonderful tool because it gives you the sense that you have a machine and a tool that will allow you to at least collect things in the same way each time. You can start establishing some truths that have regularities. And I think that that's powerful because there are as many sayings and ways to say things as there are ideas. You know, part of the reason I became a scientist was also because people would say things like, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, I've also heard out of sight, out of mind. So which one is it? Well, it turns out it's both. So basically, whatever advice you get, you can serve whatever goal you have or whatever you're feeling. People say, um, you know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. But you know what? That actually doesn't help me sometimes. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. When you understand the reward mechanisms of how we embark on long journeys, then you start to ratchet into some power that that you can employ and use and put to use. So I'm very anti-meme unless that meme has a real core like kernel of knowledge that's attached to it. And a life of science is not just about collecting facts and throwing them on a pile. A life in science is about finding principles. And I'll say that probably more important than embracing science is for people to become intellectuals. And the term intellectual is really misunderstood. Knowing a little bit about your past, I can tell you right now, you are an intellectual. What is an intellectual? An intellectual is somebody that can think about and talk about their craft at multiple levels of granularity. I'm sure you can tell me all the details of swimming stroke that are involved in a triathlon. I know you have other endeavors in life, but let's just say in triathlon because you've had a high degree of success there. 
But you can also just look at somebody who's learning to swim and say, yeah, they're just kick- you're kicking too often. You just need to slow your kicks down, drop your feet into the water. That's a level of great. You can go detailed or you can go high level. Detailed, high level. People need to learn how to be intellectuals of their craft. And if they're not an intellectual of their craft, they should be talking to intellectuals of their craft. People think intellectuals necessarily use a lot of complex language. No. In fact, some of the smartest people, the best and most accomplished intellectuals are people that can take hard concepts and distill them down into just meaningful chunks of of information that are still attached to the truth. And that's the challenge. It's not easy. You have to have deep knowledge in something. I can't talk about triathlon, except I know it involves a long run, a long swim, and a bike. I can't even tell you what order it's in. So obviously, I am not equipped to talk about triathlon. It's not just knowledge. It's the ability to zoom in and out of that knowledge to communicate that knowledge. So science is a beautiful place to learn that process. And many scientists don't learn it well. They're so in their little world with their blinders on. They're talking to you about their fruit flies and their mice and the study of this chemical. And it's such a pleasure nowadays to see people, for instance, David Sinclair, Sachin Panda, um, Samar Hatar, I'm trying to kind of bring into the fold. And of course, there are others. Laboratory scientists, serious hardcore scientists who care and are intellectuals of their craft and are sharing that information. So even if science isn't the right path for you, even if triathlon isn't the right path for you, think about how you collect information and what you do with it. And I encourage everyone to become an intellectual of their craft, whether or not it's painting or mothering or fathering, become an intellectual of the craft and share information. Yeah, well, I think you, 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 you uh, to give you praise, you're very good at this because uh, unfortunately, a lot of scientists, I was talking to you before we even push your cord, some scientists aren't very good at selling, you know, because ultimately what we're trying to do is spread influence here, aren't we? We're trying to help people make better choices in their life. And you have a very great ability to be able to intellectually show the things that you've learned as, as a high level person, as a scientist and make it adaptable for everyday people. So it's something you should be very proud of in yourself. It's, a, it's an amazing trait. Um, if people want to follow you, I know you've got a book coming out. It's not ready yet. It's coming out next year is the goal, is it? Yeah, it's um, too early to reveal a title because we don't have one. Yep. And um, <laughs> in 2021, you know, if people want to learn more about um, neuroscience and short tidbits, I promise, of actionable steps that they can take from that knowledge, um, Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B on Instagram. I do yeah. some- He does go. I've watched a few of them. They're, they're great guys. Check them out. He's different follow. Thanks for the, the kind words and support there. I also, you know, my lab runs studies with human subjects that don't have to come to the lab. We're now doing a lot of this remotely. Oh, we send people tech that allows us to monitor things like sleep patterns, breathing patterns, stress levels. There's some questionnaires. And what's um, kind of cool is that we actually pay you or we provide you with um, some valuable tech that you can keep and subscriptions to that tech. So, um, and you can be part of the scientific process. The best way to get involved in those studies is to send me a direct message on Instagram and put breathing studies and your email or any email that's appropriate for me to reach back to you, put you in touch with the clinical coordinator. Um, We do run studies at the lab at Stanford, of course, right now with COVID, it's a little bit more challenging, but we'll return to those as well. Um, So I promise if you send me your email there, I'll only use it for the purposes of communicating about the science, not there's no marketing or anything like that um, happening there. Um, But those are the places. And, and I confess that if people send me an email, um, my email is not that hard to find online. I, I generally try and respond 
respond. I'm pretty slow on email, but I do my best. And if you have a question about neuroscience, as you can probably tell, um, I'm always happy to talk science. Yeah, you're very passionate, man. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know you're very busy, man. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone loved listening to it. Uh, keep up the good work and we'll definitely maybe get you back on when the book's out and you know spread the word about it because I'm pretty fascinated to see what you come up with. I'd love that. And thanks so much for the opportunity to communicate with you and your audiences. I, I have tremendous respect for what you're doing. I did, I did my homework and, um, you know, the scientists like me and so many others rely on people like you to get the information out. And, uh, we're lucky to live in a time in which, uh, we have these digital platforms to communicate so broadly. So thank you for your time and, uh, appreciate it. What can I say? Um, wow, what an interview, what an amazing man, uh, what a passionate man, what an intelligent man, uh, what great insight he has. Just, I really enjoyed the interview. And he was, a, one thing I loved about him, he was a real curious soul. And even after the interview, we probably chatted for another 15 minutes. Um, and I was telling my wife afterwards, because sometimes when you interview, you know, I'm very lucky I get to interview a lot of high level people. Actually, I think I spoke about this with my interview with Brad Moore last week. Uh, in the last episode, The All Black Coach. Uh, just how, you know, Andrew was really interested in what I was doing, he was interested to get some insight into some of the things I've learned around fitness and stuff like this. And just, he, he just, you know, he talked about the end, that intelligence thing, you know, aim to be intelligent around things. Uh, and the thing about him was he had that real key thing of curiosity. And obviously curiosity in an area that he's passionate about in his career, but also just curiosity about people. Uh, you know, and I think that's just a really great character trait to have. To be curious to understand at a higher level is a really great human trait. So um, I'll put a link to his website. I'll put a link to his Instagram and all his kind of information on the show notes on bevanjamesoz.com. Uh, yep. Just love that interview. Hope you got a light out of it. Now, if you want to support the show, you can go to bevanjamesoz.com podcast click on support me and then that way you can put a bit of your hard-earned money my way and each time i release a show you'll just give me a bit of your hard-earned money and it's really supported uh really appreciated i should say also if you want to chuck a review on itunes or spotify or any of your podcatchers that really helps as well spread the spread the word about the show i'm not going to really go on any much longer we're coming up to an hour 40 it's a longer show than we normally do in this podcast but it was definitely worth it. So that's this week's episode done and dusted. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with a Bevan show. So that's me out for now. As always, keep being you, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.